to DNA Clarity and Support. I'm your host, Brian. Listen as I chat with authors and leaders in the DNA world about the family and personal impacts of DNA testing. You'll hear news stories, unique perspectives, find out about books, websites, organizations, other podcasts for those involved in the world of DNA. Please be sensitive to younger listeners as the conversations can get intense at times. This is a production of Watershed DNA. Learn more at watershedDNA.com. Welcome to today's episode of DNA Clarity and Support. Our guest today is Peter J. Bonney. Peter is a husband, a father, a grandfather. He's a retired business executive and a former military officer, special operations combat veteran. Shortly before Peter's 50th birthday, he learned a shocking piece of information about his past that he was not previously aware of. He is donor conceived. This led to research in assisted reproductive technology, the industry, and it has culminated in his latest book, Uprooted. Welcome today, Peter. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Your book is called Uprooted, and the subtitle is Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. That's a big subtitle, and that tells me that there's quite a lot that you cover in your book. Could you tell us a little bit about what the reader might expect to learn when they pick up a copy of it? Sure. The reader can expect a part memoir and part expose on what has become a multi-billion dollar assisted reproductive technology industry. And it is an industry. And it's a broken industry. And they can also expect a suggested fix of this broken industry. And Uprooted, I share not only my journey of discovering uh, deeper truths about my own genetics, but also my acquired knowledge from a full 22 years of research on the scientific, the legal, and the sociological history and the consequences of artificial insemination. And I get into it from early biblical references, and I take it right through to the present day. My 75-year-old mother underwent open-heart surgery and then suffered a post-operative stroke. And all of the locks that guarded her secrets no no longer worked. She began recounting a story of my conception to the visitors while at her rehab center. And I suspect that helped her regain her memory as she was recovering from a stroke. But she didn't tell me, my wife did. And I waited until my mother returned home from rehab to have the talk. And the talk was actually about my roots and the disruption that I felt as a result of learning that I was donor conceived. You were around age 50, you were about to have your birthday, and this news came out as a result of your mother disclosing the information not from a DNA test, correct? Correct. And so that was, that was the piece of your story that led you to have an interest in wondering about the assisted reproductive industry and the history of that in the United States. So was that the point when you started researching the history of assisted reproductive 
technologies or did that happen later on? Well, my mother gave me clues, but with her stroke, her memory was a little bit faded and the clues were just not correct. I was running into a a blank wall and there were no records kept at the time of my conception, which was 1945, to... uh, at least get some information, I decided to uh, research the entirety of the origin of assisted reproductive technology and take a look not only at the science, but the sociology and the legal aspects of it as well. This is all I could do to accommodate my need to know. So you were conceived in 1945, which is a period of time that I don't think a lot of people think of sperm donation happening back then. Like we think of it more in recent decades, but really there are people who are donor conceived that span every generation right now. The first episode of donor conception was documented in 1886 at Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. And it's been a uh, climb since then. I learned so much reading your book about parts of the history of the assisted reproductive industry that I didn't know, even though I've been aware of this field since I began my own professional training in early 2000s. A term that was new to me when reading your book was the term semi-adopted. And for listeners who might also not be familiar with that term, could you describe when that term was used and what impact being semi-adopted, which is what I understand is how you describe your experience. What impact has that had on your identity or your sense of self? Well, the sociology at the time was not in favor of artificial insemination by donor, but it was an option that was available by science for a childless couple to have a child, at least a part biological child recognizing that I'm a marketing guy and I know all about packaging. Artificial insemination by donor was packaged as semi-adoption in order to gain some greater acceptance. So in a way, it was really viewed as a a solution for couples that struggled with infertility. So it was more of like a medical solution. And It wasn't really the thinking back that time that the children conceived from those methods that it would have any impact on them in the long term in terms of identity. It was handled very much like closed adoption back in the day. They just didn't tell the kid. They felt that it was better for everybody. And the man was never uh, given the embarrassment of infertility. There were lots of discussions by church and state regarding the uh, legality or the legitimacy of a child if uh, he or she were born by artificial insemination by a donor. So there was no accusation of adultery uh, for the mother and no accusation of uh, being a bastard for the uh, child who was conceived by artificial insemination by donor. So stigma existed back then. So the, the societal sociological perspective, if you keep it a secret, no one gets hurt. And what we've learned, in, especially in recent years and recent decades, is that genetic identity is really important for people to have. And within the world of 
misattributed parentage. There are lots of different types. There's no late discovery versus early disclosure. Adoptees, people who are donor conceived, um, people who were conceived from extramarital relationships. Sometimes the biological father and social father were both aware and some, some situations there's not. So there's a lot of variation from one experience to the next for people who have misattributed parentage. Misattributed was a term that was actually totally unfamiliar to me until I began researching my origin. Misconceived, misunderstood, misnomer. You know, I was familiar with all, all, all the other miswords, but it means that someone is a, an NPE or you're misattributed through a non-parental event to one or both parents. You know, your birth certificate, your DNA just don't jive, and you just outlined a number of the reasons uh, why uh, somebody could be misattributed. Uh, for me, I was, in quotes, semi-adopted in a highly secretive uh, process where parents were fully complicit artificial insemination by an anonymous, anonymous donor. I was sperm donor conceived. Mm-hmm. As you were researching for your book, at what point did it become aware to you that this needed to be a book? Because I imagine at the beginning, you were just curious and wondering how did this come to be? And then at some point you realized, wow, this needs to be a book for other people to hear and learn about all of these things. Yeah, good, good question. I, I, I think I came in, in two different waves. Wave number one is when I was just doing the research. On the history, I found the, uh, the history, the sociology, the science really just flat out interesting. But when I finally, after 22 years of uh, searching for my paternal roots, discovered those paternal roots and then uncovered a, uh, a, a close relative, a sister, as a result of that research, I was compelled to write this down. And I found it actually therapeutic to write it down. And as I was writing it down, I was doing more research on the current situation in artificial insemination by donor or in assisted reproductive technology. And when I took more a look at the current situation, I was really compelled to write it down. Uh, There just seems to be so many inequities and ethical issues with the industry that enables the conception of dozens, if not a hundred or more half-siblings from the same donor without their knowledge. So there's an aspect of your book that follows your personal story, but at the same time, you're pointing out all of the different aspects of the industry that are impacting not only your past, but people today, like other people. It's a lucrative industry with several segments. Fertility practitioners around the globe now actually participate in a several hundred billion, billion dollar services industry that's supported by some products that could well attract the likes of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. The sperm banks themselves account for three and a half billion dollars of annual revenue. And the sperm market is actually forecasted to grow to five billion dollars just in the next few years. And then advances in assisted reproductive technology have also created new and uh, rapidly growing uh, segments for eggs, embryoi, and surrogates as well. Large and fast-growing markets, by the way, are protected by law 
from foreign competition. The FDA has banned gamut importation to the U.S. along the same lines that they've banned these disease-bearing organic products. Have you ever tried to get an apple out of uh, customs? Yeah, uh, like when you get off a plane, you have to declare if you have any. Yeah, you have to declare if you have anything like that. Alarm bells ring. Right. And as an aside, by the way, uh, surrogates represent the largest export in the entirety of Ukraine. If you uh, carry one child, you can feed a rural village for a year. Wow. How did it feel for you to learn that that there was so much money exchanging hands in the creation of people who would later in life find out, go through the experience that you do of, of discovering the manner of your conception. Boy, there's uh, so many emotions that one goes through uh, when they, they learn that they are, in quotes, misattributed. And what I've learned is whether you are discovering it because you're a closed late discovery adoption or an extramarital affair or donor conceived or what have you, many of the emotions are similar. And it's uh, just enormously disruptive to the, 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 your persona of who you are and how you got to be where you are. And the thought that uh, I went through that and so many other people have been going through that willfully by an industry that's just totally out of control, it was just astounding to me. I have a friend who used to breed Rottweilers, and I shared with him much of my story. And his perspective was that there's more regulation uh, for breeding puppies and more regulation for breeding dogs and more protection to the unborn puppy than there are in this entirely large business called the conception of a human being. You bring up the term rights, and it reminded me that at the end of your book, you include a list of the Bill of Rights of the Donor Conceived. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Because I know this is a, a list that's partly inspired by other people, but some of your own ideas as well. That was a great part of your book that kind of, I felt like it brought together all of the different pieces that you explore in more detail throughout your book. And you narrowed it down to the main points that maybe people who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what the experience would be like to be donor conceived, that helps a person like myself step into the shoes of you and others who've been through the experience of discovering that they're donor conceived and, and see that experience through your eyes. Do you want to talk about the Bill of Rights a little bit? Sure. You know, it's terrific that medical science has advanced to the tune that it has to enable wanting people to have a family. I mean, that's fine. But the laws on the books all lean towards protecting the donors and protecting the recipients. Sure, they have rights, but can you point to any federal law that actually protects the rights of the donor-conceived child? I mean, somebody like me? The donor-conceived rights would abolish donor anonymity. You don't have that anyway with DNA science today. Anonymity has basically been obsoleted by 21st century technology. 
It would disclose donor genetics and medical history. It would require genetic testing of a donor. It would limit the number of offspring per donor so that someone doesn't have 100 siblings that they don't know. And it would register the uh, sibling donor offspring to one another so that they would know. It would require donor and recipient counseling regarding the need and the rights of the donor-conceived child, and then define some legal consequences for blatant fertility fraud. Uh, Right now, today, you can take a look at some fraudulent situations that have gone on and say, gosh, that really is unethical, isn't it? But there's no legal recourse. So the Bill of Rights essentially are drawing attention to the fact that there's not uniformity across the industry of everybody doing these things. I imagine that there's a lot of cryobanks and fertility clinics that are already starting to do or have already adopted some of these practices, but it's not across the board. That's kind of the the issue at large that I think your book will help bring the conversation in is right now it's not uniform across the board and we need to change that. There may be some guidelines. There's a trade association that puts out guidelines. A guideline is not a law. A guideline is not enforceable by law. That's a part of the issue. And even the guidelines, if they are adhered to, state that they're looking to restrict the donor conception to 25 per donor per 800,000 population. Well, if that's a guideline for each sperm bank or gamut bank to follow, that would mean that in the city of Sacramento, for instance, I would have 25 siblings. In metropolitan Boston, I'd have 125 siblings. Wow. But if I were in New York City or Los Angeles, following that guideline, I'd have 250 siblings. So is that really a guideline to follow? Is that... And it's not a law. Now, uh, if I were to uh, donate to a a sperm bank and they follow that guideline, there's nothing precluding me from going to uh, six other sperm banks. So you take that guideline, multiply it by six. Also, these gamut distributors are now occupying their seats, not by medical professionals, but by people that have Procter & Gamble and Uh, merchandising experience. They're run like Harrods or Nordstrom's. There's uh, catalog marketing. There's, I'd say it follows my business experience that uh, there's the 80-20 rule. Familiar with the 80-20 rule? I am. 80% of the people actually buy 20% of the inventory, milk, bread, meat, and the other 80% or the other 20% purchased by 80% of the people or rather the other way around. So using that guideline or using that rule, the 80-20 rule, and taking the facts that of the top five sperm banks that have 100 donors each, they supply 50% of the sperm in this country. So you do the math. You do the math. It's a very diverse um, pool. No, you do, do the math on that, number one. Uh, do the 80-20 rule, number two, and it's no wonder that you have a half dozen or so siblings born to the same donor every year. The 10-year life of sperm, if it's frozen, 
multiplied by that number, it's no wonder that uh, people have over 100 siblings in the course of discovering uh, that they are donor conceived. Did you post something on social media recently where you were out at a restaurant in a different country and on the menu, there was something that was like an advertisement to families? Am I, am I remembering this? That took my breath away. Brianna. Yeah, so tell, tell me about it. I was in, a, I was in a restaurant in a beautiful setting in the Azores, actually. Barclora, I think it was called. And there, at the uh, you flip the menu over, and it's in English. On one side, it's Portuguese. The other side, it's in English. And there is an advertisement for targeting Americans, saying, if you're having difficulty conceiving, you know, come to my clinic, and we're European certified, and so on down the line. My gosh, that just took my breath away. Now, I asked, I asked the waiter, why did this show up on the uh, English version of the, <laughs> of the uh, menu? And he said he didn't know. I should go talk to the manager. And was it manage. on the other side? Was it on the Portuguese side too? No, no, no. It was only on the American side, the English side. It was only on the English side, but they were advertising for Americans. So I asked uh, the manager, whose name was Abel, and I said, Abel, can you tell me what how this thing got on here. And he said, well, actually, the owner of this restaurant is the owner of a fertility clinic in Portugal. And he's found a little bit of a niche. And the niche is the either a highly stressed American on vacation coming to think that they have a little bit of opportunity to conceive a child if they just get away from the stress. Wow. Now, in Portugal, they require uh, anonymity for uh, any uh, donor. So uh, so then that would be perceived as a benefit for a couple that wants to have an anonymous donor? Well, for the uninformed that just aren't knowledgeable about the impact of misattribution on a child when they late discover it. So uh, I can just uh, see uh, 20 years from now, uh, somebody learning through DNA or what have you that they're parentage isn't quite what they thought it was. And all of those stories about, hey, mom and dad or or whatever uh, got pregnant when they were on vacation in Portugal and you were conceived in Portugal. Yeah. If the full story comes out, I mean, if mom and dad have already died before the child makes the discovery, they may never know the the true whole story. No, they may never know. They may think an extramarital affair or any number of uh, things. Uh, they may think that their mom was raped. I mean, who knows? Right. And you write about family trauma in your book as well as personal trauma. And you said that you had a counselor say that you have the trifecta when working through the discovery of your donor conception. Did you experience that discovery as traumatic? And could you explain how that impacted you as you were working through parts of your past? Yeah, well, when I did discover this, it was traumatic, number one. I was going through a marital crisis on top of that, number two. So uh, therapy was times two. It was my own personal therapy and some marital therapy at the same time, sort of a condition for keeping my marriage together. And as I went through the therapy, what I learned is that new trauma often rekindles old trauma that you thought was long past. In my case, I had a very disruptive childhood, 
and I uh, had a lot of PTSD from a war zone that I just never effectively dealt with. So my therapist did say, uh, son, you just hit a trifecta. So in order to deal with my primary issue that I went to him for, I really had to re- resurface all of those old issues that, frankly, I never effectively dealt with. Mm-hmm. That was the mm-hmm. hardest work I'd ever done in my life. I can I can only imagine. And when did that happen? When were because that was a maybe a time when the recognition of the importance of counseling and not having that be stigmatized. Yeah, I was. Uh, it was in 1995 when I first discovered this. You know, in the old days, I've seen this in both in the uh, war room as well as in the boardroom that if you have issues in dealing with situations, maybe you're just not fit for command. You as a weakness. And I was, I was a CEO who needed some therapy and I kept it quiet, but I, I just needed some help. Uh, so I sought that help through a therapist. I'm really glad that you're talking about that because I think there's people out there who will hear this discussion and maybe they've been reluctant to go see a therapist or a counselor because they have that belief that they should be able to get through it all on their own. And hearing your story, maybe they, that will be the impetus that they needed to encourage them to go work, work through these, a traumatic discovery. Cause I think you were definitely not alone in experiencing what you did as traumatic. So thank you for sharing What's really a personal piece of your story with listeners? Well, you're welcome. I have a lot of anxiety about uh, releasing some of the things that I kept so personal for so long, but this is the time to do it. Yeah. And you mentioned Roxy earlier on in our conversation. How would you feel about me asking a, a little bit about that relationship? Go ahead. Which relationships in your life have you noticed have been impacted the most since your discovery of your donor conception? Has it been the relationships closer to you? Have they grown or changed? Well, you know, I tease my wife at times. And now that we're almost 53 years together, that uh, it's been the happiest 42 years of her adult life. (laughs) You know, that, that number keeps on going up, but we're having a good run. And that good run, I attribute largely to my mother spilling the donor conception secret. And the fallout of that truth just got us to a good place. And with the help of the therapist and a full bucket of truth, I was able to come to terms with some of my demons and express my feelings and reveal my vulnerabilities and create a far greater sense of intimacy and trust in really in my relationships, not only with my wife, but well, with my mother when she was still alive, and now my grown children, uh, my friends, and even my business associates. You mentioned Roxy. You know, my family bond uh, grew when I shared my discovery with my dad's family, my Italian cousins. Uh, they no longer refer to me as a biological cousin. I'm now a logical cousin. <laughs> I like that logical. And I'm a logical Italian. Better than illogical, right? Yeah. 
And the biology just hasn't mattered to any of us. And the DNA connection to Roxanne, we thought we were close family, first cousins, is what it was said to be on the DNA site. And it was Roxy who actually championed finding the source of my seed in her family tree. And we really shared a thrilling sense of adventure while we were sleuthing for an intense month until she called me with her windfall. She asked me, are you sitting down? (laughs) It's been four years since she asked me that question. And uh, frankly, I still pinch myself. A, A former only child who has developed a fun bond of friendship with a younger sister. So our resemblance is also really uncanny. DNA just doesn't lie. So it took Roxy a month of sleuthing and she figured out that you shared the same father. Yeah. And she was the one to break the news to you. Exactly. And things have just gotten better from there. And I told her, I'm glad, that, I'm glad you were the one that told me. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you had to tell anybody your story and it was hard or it was difficult for you to, to share? Earlier on, I was very private about it and kept it in a closed circle. And the more I learned about the history of artificial insemination by donor, the more I learned about the current practices in the industry, the more I benefited from my own therapy and learned about myself, the more I learned about my biological heritage that I didn't know that I had, the more I wanted to share. And maybe it was therapeutic for me to write it down. Yeah. And it's, it's a book that needed to be written, too. And I'm glad that you did it. I think this would be a great place to wrap up the conversation because what I've, what I've learned from talking with you is that, you know, the story of the phoenix where... It goes through the fire and out of the ashes rises a new and a changed being. It's kind of how I've, I hear your stories come full circle, that it was a really painful experience for you, but it's leading to great things and it's leading to discussions that need to be had on a grander scale, not just within your family, but you know, on a high level. And I'm really glad for you that everything worked out well for your mystery to be solved and that Roxy was a part of that. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for listening to today's episode of DNA Clarity and Support Podcast. Head on over to watershedDNA.com to learn more about the resources and support available for those involved in DNA discoveries.